0: Good morning. Welcome. My name's Al. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the elders at Gateway, and I've got the privilege of uh, heading up the site here, um, just bring you greetings from the West. We've had a great morning. If I am more lopsided to this side of the room, it's not because I prefer this half, it's just I can't really go over here, so don't take offense if you're on that side of the room. Um, just want to um, go really from what Colin was just saying about sharing a stories. On Thursday, one of the things that Nigel, who's also one of the elders at Gateway, was sharing about was how... Um, When he got a taxi over here last Sunday from Gateway West to Gateway East, he had the opportunity to witness to the taxi driver. And I was like, oh man, last time I got a taxi, I was like, didn't say anything, I was just thinking about my preach. I felt really provoked by Nigel. So I got in the car today, like, right, this taxi driver's going to get it. (laughs) And I got in there, and and firstly, he wasn't very very happy, and I was like, okay, this isn't going too well. And he, he was like... What are you doing? And I was like, okay, cool. This is my opportunity. And I got to have a 15-minute conversation with him about Jesus, life, purpose, meaning. He grew up as a Jehovah's Witness and he kind of didn't really understand what Christianity was all about. And I got the opportunity just for 10 or 15 minutes, just to witness to this guy. And I said to him, hey, if you're ever free on a Sunday morning, you're welcome to come. 10 o'clock in the West, 11 o'clock in the East. And he was like, thank you so much. So his name is Simon. I'm going to be praying for him. Um, I just, I was so, like, almost, there was a godly jealousy with what Nigel was saying. I was like, come on, I can, I can speak to the taxi driver. I don't have to be thinking about my preach on the way over here. So if it's naff, it's because I was witnessing to the taxi driver. LAUGHTER that's my, that's my get-out clause. But anyway, it genuinely, like, this is something that feels like God has gripped our heart with as a leadership team, that actually we're to be kingdom bringers wherever we find ourselves. Whether that's in a taxi, whether that's over the fence with our neighbour, whether that's seeing somebody in the street who needs the love of Jesus, whether that's in the workplace with a colleague who's struggling, that we're called to be image bearers of the kingdom of God wherever we find ourselves. And I know I've got a long way to go on that. I only share that as a, hopefully an encouragement um, and a challenge for you as well. So, we are four weeks into our series uh, this morning uh, through the book of Daniel, looking at this book, which is not just a history book. I'll just say that it's not a history book. It's written to show us how to hold on to the reality of Christ in challenging and turbulent circumstances, both corporately in the world, but also personally when there are challenges in our life. How do we hold firm? To God and who he is. And so far through the book of Daniel, we've seen in Daniel chapter 1, Colin talked about the fact that God is sovereign over the affairs of this world. And he's sovereign over the affairs of our lives. Even when it looks like things are out of control, and it, God, how could you be in control in Yemen? It's like, no, God says, I am in control. I am sovereign and you're called to be faithful. And then in Daniel chapter 2, we see the fact that God opens um, Nebuchadnezzar's eyes through, the, through his vision and his dream about this coming kingdom, which is going to fill the whole earth, which is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then last week, Nigel took us through Daniel 3, which is all about you know, the fiery furnace. Daniel 3 is not just about a fiery furnace. It's about how do we live out lives faithful to God? in the midst of challenges, in the midst of suffering, and how do we remain faithful to the King of Kings? And today we're turning our attention to Daniel 4, which is written by King Nebuchadnezzar himself. He authored this chapter. The King of Babylon has got a chapter in the Bible. Let me just pray, and then we'll get going. So, Heavenly Father, I want to just thank you for, for what you're doing amongst us as your people. Lord, I want to pray, would you continue to stir us, would you continue to reveal yourself to us through this book I want to thank you, Lord, for the challenges so far of the call to be faithful. And I want to pray this morning as we look through Daniel 4 and this strange occurrence of events, Lord, that happened to Nebuchadnezzar, I pray that you would humble our hearts before you. You would help us to realize Lord, who we are before you, and that would cause worship to rise up inside of us, Lord God. Lord, I want to ask for attentive ears to hear. I ask that you would anoint what I am saying, Lord, Lord, that it would be your words through me, Lord God. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see in the beginning of Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar writes this praise to God, if you like. He says, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And it can be easy to think at this point that Nebuchadnezzar softened his heart toward God because of what he had seen. But the reality is his heart was just as hardened toward the living God as it had been all the way through. He just said, well, because I've seen the power of God, maybe if I don't worship the golden image, maybe if I just say a few prayers to this other God, then maybe something will happen. But his heart had not been changed. We'll see that he's a man who's just as proud at the beginning of chapter four as he is right the way through chapter two and chapter three. We get this narrative. He, he's, he says he's at ease and he's prospering in his palace in verse three is what it says. But then he has another dream that terrifies him. It alarms him. And yet again, as in, as in chapter two, he calls his enchanters, his so-called magicians, his so-called gurus, if you like. And he says, hey, guys, can you interpret this dream for me? And they look at him and like, no idea. And so he remembers. He says, ah, I remember what happened before. I called Daniel. The spirit of the holy God is in Daniel. I'm going to call him and see if he can interpret this dream. And he calls Daniel to the palace. And he says, Daniel, I know that you can interpret this dream. And Daniel says, tell me the dream. And he says, I saw this dream of this tree in the field. And it's a tree that grows up and up and up to the highest part of the heaven. And it extends outwards. And its leaves are bountiful. And its fruit is plenty. And it provides shade for the beasts of the field. It provides shelter for the birds to live in. All flesh is fed from this giant tree whose dominion extends through the whole of the earth. And he sees this tree... And then he sees it. His next, next part of the dream is, he says, it gets cut down to the stump. This mighty tree is cut down to a stump. And it's wrapped in bronze and iron. And it says, it goes on to say, then it becomes like that of a beast for seven periods of time. The watcher, the holy one, chops down the tree, leaves it as a stump, and it almost becomes like a beast of the field for seven periods of time. And in verse 17, it says this, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. He's like, this dream is going to happen because the the kingdom is being handed over to the lowliest of men. We see in chapter seven, who the lowliest of men is, is Jesus Christ, who went low, who humbled himself to the point of death even to the point of death, and therefore God exalted him. He is the lowliest of men that is referred to in here. And he, he said to Nebuchadnezzar, you think you're something, but actually, I'm going to give over the kingdom. The kingdom is actually belongs to the lowliest of men. It belongs to God. It belongs to Jesus Christ. We're going to pick up the narrative in verse 22. It's going to come up on the screen. It says this, Your majesty, you are that tree, You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, Your Majesty, and this is the decree that the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon? I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven saying, this is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar, your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you "'until you acknowledge that the Most High "'is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth "'and gives them to anyone he wishes.' "'Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar "'was fulfilled. "'He was driven away from people "'and ate like, the, like ate grass like the ox. "'His body was drenched with the dew of heaven "'until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle "'and his nails like the claws of a bird. "'At the end of that time, "'I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven.' And my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my sanity was restored. My honour and splendour were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. There's a lot in this passage, and there's a lot of imagery, a lot of things that can be confusing. But the thread, the message, the theme through chapter 4 is this, verse 37, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar learns what humility is like when he worships, when he gives his heart to the living God, God most high. John Piper puts it like this, God takes Nebuchadnezzar from the pride of self to the praise of God through the valley of Of humiliation. And that's the message in the thread here. God wants to humble our hearts before Him. Whether that be individuals in this room, whether that be kings and rulers and authorities, God wants to humble us so that we recognize who we are before Him and that we bow the knee before Him and worship Him. God wants to turn people who are proud into worshipers of the living God. That's the story that's happening here. That is what's happening to Nebuchadnezzar through this passage. And we see in verse 22, as we we trace the story a bit further through, that the kingdom of Babylon is like this mighty tree that is tall and vast and strong and extends to the end of the known earth and is, is bountiful, if you like. And Nebuchadnezzar, who was a renowned king, considered to be a military genius, a political mastermind, he was a strong king. But God tells him, He says, you're proud, King Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm warning you that I'm going to cut you down like a tree and you're going to become like an animal for seven periods of time, which is some say seven months, some say seven seasons, some say seven years, for a period of time until you bow the knee and you surrender everything to me, God most high. He wants King Nebuchadnezzar as a worshiper. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar, in his heart, thought he was more than just a man. He thought he was God over the world. And God says, you think you're God? I'm going to show you who is the master of the universe. The living God, God most high, is the master of the universe. But even in the midst of this dream and this interpretation, Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, if you turn your heart toward God, verse 27, he says this, Let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Even in the the midst of this coming judgment on Nebuchadnezzar for his proud heart, God says, hey, would you turn to me now? Would you turn to me now? He says the grace is on offer now for you to respond and turn your heart toward me. But we see Nebuchadnezzar, his heart doesn't respond to these warnings. His heart hasn't responded to the warnings of chapter 2 about the coming kingdom. His heart didn't respond even to seeing Jesus in the fiery furnace in chapter 3. His heart doesn't respond to this warning. And he says in verse 30, Is this not Babylon which I have built for my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Despite all the dreams and all the warnings, King Nebuchadnezzar's heart He thinks everything he has is by him and for him. The Bible tells us that everything was created by God and for God. Colossians chapter 1, created by God, by Jesus, for Jesus, and through Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he is like a God. He thinks that he is so important, and so he thinks he is the master of the universe. And God comes and says, no, let me show you that I really am the master of the universe. And in Nebuchadnezzar's case, it takes him to go lower than a human almost, For him to realize who he is before a mighty God. Who he is before a holy God, Jesus Christ. You see, he's standing on the rooftop, despite all these warnings, full of pride. And he's puffed up and he says, look at my kingdom. Isn't it marvelous? Isn't it wonderful? Look at what I have built. And God says, you missed the picture. Look at my kingdom, which extends from generation to generation and endures forever forever. And goes on and on and on. That is the true kingdom. Your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, is not the true kingdom. You might think it is. And he says, no, let me show you. I'm going to show you that my kingdom is the true kingdom. And the reality is, for everybody in this room, to some extent, pride is an issue before God. Pride is an issue before God. And it's not just limited to people that are rich and powerful, who look at their achievements and go, hey, Look at what I've achieved. You may be here this morning and feel totally broken and crushed, yet pride is the driving force behind everything that you do. You may be searching to be valued by others, but it's actually underlying it. You you don't realize that it's only God that can bring you true value and true worth and true reason. You see, sometimes pride is very obvious to spot, and sometimes it's very subtle, and we have to look in our hearts and say, what is going on? But verse 30 gives us the clue about what pride is, it's about where we seek glory for ourselves, for my glory. And you see, let me just tell you how this works out in my own life, the battle I have with pride. The biggest challenge I have is the seeking the approval of others. And it may be very subtle sometimes. people may not know it, but sometimes in my heart I am waiting for the approval of someone, and then when they give it, I'm like, "Ah! Oh, now I've achieved. Now I feel like I've, I've got something. I've got somewhere. I've, and then equally, when criticism comes, bam, I feel like low as anything. Because I'm, I'm, in my heart, there's a pride that's seeking approval of other people. And God says, don't seek approval of other people. You've got my approval already. You're a son of the God most high. And pride for each of you will work its way out in all sorts of different ways. And we can be Christians for many years, and pride can still resonate and wrestle and be present in our hearts. But do you know what my experience of pride is? Is that it robs you of joy. It is a joy robber. If you are proud in your heart, maybe it's about seeking the approval of others. Maybe it's to do with rejection. Maybe pride to do with money. Maybe pride is to do with your possessions. Maybe pride is to do with how you achieve at work. Do you know what? It robs you of joy. The times I've been most robbed of joy is the times when I am most seeking the approval of other people. Because if it comes... Oh, look what I've done. If it doesn't come in the pits. And God says, no. He's like, humble yourself before me, Al. Seek my approval. You've already got my approval. You're the apple of my eye. And pride will rob you of joy in life. Tim Keller says it like this. Pride is that which claims to be the author of what is really a gift. You see, everything we have in this world is a gift from God. The breath in our lungs. The money in our pocket. The roof under our heads. Friends, family, it's a gift from God. And we, wanna, we, we need to be people that are humble before God and say, thank you for everything that I do have, God. I don't deserve it, but you've freely given it. Whatever that may be, if we, if we start to view things as a right, that's where pride comes, When we view it as a gift from God. That's where humility comes from. You see, true humility, when we bow the knee before God, is liberating, and it's life-giving and it's freeing. But pride also works its way out upon people maybe in this room who you say, I've never given my life to Jesus. Or with friends and family that you know of who have never surrendered their heart to Jesus. Because it works out like this, I don't need God. In fact, the taxi driver I was just talking to, I don't need God really. I, might, I know about a God, but I don't need him in my life. I'm not one of those people that needs him. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king who has everything there is to have, money, power, fame. He had no need, he thought, for God. And God says, I'm going to show you how desperately you are in need of me. And despite the fact that Nebuchadnezzar has everything, he has this dream that terrifies and alarms him. You see, no matter how many empires you hold in your life, it's never enough to satisfy a deep craving in our heart for true love, true reasoning, true life, and true joy, which only comes from knowing Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here this morning, you've never given your heart to Jesus. I would love to talk to you afterwards about what it looks like to bow the knee before God Most High, knowing that's where true life and true reasoning comes from. But as Nebuchadnezzar speaks these words in verse 30, look at what I have done, the promise that God says is going to happen happens to him. And we see in verse 33 this terrifying description that he looks and looks like an animal for seven years, maybe seven months or seven seasons. And actually, if you think about that, the language here is shocking and the imagery is quite offensive. If you're not kind of thinking, what is that and how does that work out? Probably you're not really engaging. He makes, he's like an animal for a period of time. Why does God do this? God is saying to him, look, all that you are, Nebuchadnezzar, you think you're bigger than me, all that you are, even your ability to think and your kingdom and your power is from me and for me, not for your glory. Even your ability to think like a man is not for yourself, it's for my glory. And I can take it away, he says. God says in Daniel 2, I establish and I remove kings. You see, it's a long way down from being a king of one of the largest kingdoms ever to be experienced in the world to a beast of the field. And what he's saying is that pride almost defaces who you are before God. Pride defaces your humanity, if you like. You become less than a man almost when you're full of pride like Nebuchadnezzar is. And because Nebuchadnezzar aspired to be like a god, he's just going to make you less than a man. Because you aspire to be more than just a man... I'm going to make you less than a man until you humble yourself and bow the knee and surrender yourself before the living God. And God is saying to Nebuchadnezzar, the whole point, the whole imagery here is to show us that actually he's saying, you think you're the master, but no, you're not the master. Don't over inflate who you are before me. Yes, you're valued and loved. But you think you are somehow, everything is for you and for your glory. And he's like, no, let me show you. It's actually, that's the wrong way around. Everything is for Jesus' glory and Jesus' kingdom. And all of life is a, is a gift from him. And he says, I'm going to use this episode in Nebuchadnezzar's life to show that is happening. But at the end of the days, we see this wonderful restoration and surrendering of Nebuchadnezzar's heart to the living God. We see him, rather than in verse 3 where he just confesses with his lips, his heart is radically changed to become a worshipper of the Most High God. A hardened man who was far from the living God, he's brought to his knees before God and he says, I worship the God Most High. I worship the living God. This is one of the great prayers of the Bible that Nebuchadnezzar prays. At the end of the days, Nebuchadnezzar, I Nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. Just want to pause there a minute. Our culture thinks that true reasoning comes from rationalizing, arguing, knowledge, intellect. True knowledge, true reasoning, true life only comes by looking your eyes to heaven and acknowledging. God acknowledging Jesus Christ. That's where reason really comes from. And his reason, is his true reasoning is only restored when he looks to the heavens and he sees God. My reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honoured him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. For his kingdom endures from generation to generation. He said that already in verse three with his lips. He's now saying it with his heart. And his lesson he's come to realise is this. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing before a holy, vast God. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then it says his kingdom is restored to him, as was promised. And it says this at the end. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, what a wonderful moment this is in this man's life. What a wonderful moment in this man's life where he's bowing the knee, before God. He says, I praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. That's what God wants to do with each of us this morning. He wants us to be people that bow the knee and praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar realizes that he he deserved judgment, but he received grace. In this moment, he realises that. He realises who he is before this amazing and wonderful king. Before God most high, he realises his rightful place and his heart is humbled. And God this morning wants us to look to heaven and know true reasoning and know true knowledge and to know true wisdom by lifting our eyes to God. Lifting our eyes to the heavens. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God. And through the book of Daniel, we see increasing promises and increasing glimpses of this coming kingdom. We see Jesus in the fiery furnace. We see the lowliest of men prophesied about here. We see chapter 7 talking about the ancient of days. We see the building of this coming kingdom through Jesus Christ, who's the ultimate fulfillment. His life and death and resurrection is the ultimate fulfillment of these promises in Daniel. Jesus Christ is the one who is worthy to bow the knee before Philippians says this, isn't it? I'm just gonna find it quick. He made himself nothing. This is Jesus taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him. The name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's the call this morning, is that every knee should bow before Jesus Christ. And just to help us respond to this, there are two things I would love us just to take away from this, to pray into now, and to take away and think about in groups or over Sunday lunch. First one is this, only... Jesus can heal and restore. That's the message here. True life, true knowledge, true wisdom, true insight, true joy. Restoration from a proud heart only comes when Jesus does it. Jesus has to do it. There's this wonderful story, isn't there, in the books of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. We meet this little boy, Eustace Scrub, who's a proud little boy. And he's a greedy little boy, and he, he separates himself off from his friends. And he goes and he encounters a dying dragon. And, and when the dragon is dead, he, he, he goes into the lair of the dragon and he sees this treasure, he sees this money, he sees this, and he's like, wow, when will my friends all see this? What are they going to think about me? His heart is full of pride in that moment, his heart is full of greed in that moment. And he, he goes to sleep proud as anything with what he's got. Won't people be super impressed by what I've got? And he wakes up and he finds himself as a dragon, in the form of a dragon. And he meets this Christ-like figure in, in the Narnia books called Aslan the lion. And Aslan says, come with me. And he takes him to this nearby well. And Eustace, the dragon, starts to, he starts to scratch off a layer of himself. He says, If I can scratch off a layer, maybe I won't be a dragon anymore. And then he, he gets into the water. He's like, Oh, a layer's gone. He looks down and he's still a dragon. And he does it again. He scratches off another layer. He says, I'm still a dragon. And he looks at Aslan and Aslan says to him, You have to let me undress you. You have to let me do it. And he humbles himself before Aslan and Aslan with one mighty swipe takes his claws to Eustace and the dragon comes peeled off and he takes him and he dresses him in new clothing. You have to let Jesus do it. You may be here this morning and you may be far from God. You may never have given your life to him. And whether life is great right now or whether life is in the pits right now, Jesus says, only I can heal you. Only I can heal you. You've got to let me do it. Or maybe you're here this morning and, and you are a Christian. You know Jesus, but you know there's pride in your life. You know how you think about your money or your home or your social status or seeking the approval of others or fearing being rejected. And you're trying like Eustace to scratch off the dragon layer. Can I get, can I get rid of it? Jesus says, you can't do that. You've got to let me in. You've got to let me in. Only I can heal only I can restore, only by knowing me, does true reasoning come. And this imagery from this story in, in Narnia is so helpful because so often we think if I could just peel back this layer of guilt or shame or my past or fear, maybe then. And God says, no, you've got to let me in. You've got to let me in. You've got to let me do it. Only I can heal your heart. That's the first thing. The second thing is This and maybe can I get the band to come up? Is that all right? The second thing is this that, that Jesus can heal even the most hardened of hearts. King Nebuchadnezzar was a hardened man who was far from God. And God took him, and he humbled him, and Nebuchadnezzar bowed the knee before God. Do you know what that should do? That should give us hope. Each of you in the room will probably have somebody, a friend, a family member, maybe your children, maybe your neighbor, maybe your parents, maybe relatives, who you are longing to see them come to know Jesus, and you think there's no hope. Do you know what this passage tells us? Don't give up. Jesus can heal the most hardened of hearts. Even if this morning you're here and your heart is incredibly hardened toward him, Jesus can heal your heart this morning. So don't give up praying for your friend. Don't give up praying for your son or your daughter who may be far from God right now. Don't give up. God can break into the hardest of hearts. And God can break into the hardest of rulers and kings as well. We can look at the story and go, yeah, it's nice that Nebuchadnezzar was restored, but it will never happen to the president of Burundi. Or it will never happen to President Mugabe in Zimbabwe. Or it will never happen to the ruler of North Korea. Or it will never happen to the ruler of China. Or it will never happen to the countless other dictators that exist in this world. God says, don't give up hope. I can break in and humble the hardest of hearts. I can break in and I can humble the hardest of rulers and kings. So won't you cry out to me? Won't you cry out that that God's mercy would be on display in kings and rulers in in the nations of the world? They would soften their hearts toward him. If you're from a different nation other than the United Kingdom, can I just ask you just to stand now, if that's okay? If you're not from the United Kingdom, can I just ask you to stand? India, Nepal, Nigeria are you from? Thailand. Zimbabwe. What other nations are represented in the room? South Africa. Ghana. Kenya. There are nations in this room where God can break in and heal the hardest of rulers. Even Mugabe in Zimbabwe, a hardened man, or break, in, break into that man's life. If you're from the United Kingdom, can you all say, it should be everyone sat down, hopefully. If, you can, if you're from the United Kingdom, can you stand up too now? God needs to break in on our government. In light of the events of this week and Brexit and all the uncertainty, God needs to break into the Houses of Parliament, and He's to break into the Houses of Commons, He's to break into the Houses of Lords, and He wants to humble our leaders, He wants to bring them on their knees before Him. Through the, through the corridors of Westminster, we pray that God's name would be glorified. Through the corridors of power, we pray that Jesus' name might be lifted up in the nation of the United Kingdom, in Nepal, in India, in Nigeria, in Zimbabwe, in South Africa, in Thailand, where there's dictators in certain parts of the world. We say, how could God ever break in? We cry out to you, God, break in to those nations we cry out. Break into those nations and we cry. Oh, God, Lord, we speak, Lord, over Burundi, over the president who is hell-bent on war, it seems. We say, humble him before you, Lord. Amen. Lord, we say, humble him before you, God, even as Donna is there this week. Lord, we, we cry out to you, humble the president of Burundi, Lord, who, who, who professes you in lips like Nebuchadnezzar, but his heart seems to be far from you. Lord, we cry out to him, for him today. Lord, we say, true knowledge and true wisdom, And true insight would come, Lord, by him surrendering and bowing the knee before Jesus Christ. We pray for Theresa May, Lord, and the UK government. And we cry out, God, break into their lives, Lord. Lord, may they rule and reign in this country. Lord, with grace, may they rule and reign. May they come to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour, we pray. Lord, we lift up the United Kingdom to you today. And we say, God, have mercy upon this nation. Lord, rise up, men and women of faith who will take the good news to Westminster. Lord, we pray for Nepal. We say, Open that nation for the gospel. Open that nation for the gospel, we pray. Soften kings and rulers. We pray for India. Lord, we lift up India to you, Lord God. Places where there are many unreached people group, and we cry out, Lord God, that you would soften the hearts of rulers and governments in India as well, Lord where there is persecution, that we cry out to you, Lord Jesus, for rulers and authorities to bow the knee before the living God.